We know from the scriptures that Jesus Christ has promised to build his church. That is really a main theme in these letters that Paul has written to Timothy. That Christ is building his church. Christ is keeping his church and protecting his church and maturing and developing and sanctifying his church. And he will fulfill all his purposes for his church. And really the central tool, if you will, that God uses, that Christ uses and has used to found his church and grow his church is his truth. For example, let me read to you a few texts of Scripture that bear this out. Christ has built his church on his truth. Matthew 16, 13 through 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Just in that text, we see this magnificent interchange between Jesus and Peter. And he's asking the question, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies with a truthful confession of the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes that clear to him then that 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 truth was revealed to him by the Father. And it was upon that confession of the truth about Jesus Christ that Jesus says he would build his church. Ephesians 2, 19-22 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. When the Apostle Paul here says that the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, what else does he mean other than that the church is built on the writings of the apostles and the prophets? They're the truth that God in the Spirit revealed through the apostles. The foundation of the church is the truth of Jesus Christ. Or 1 Timothy 4, 14 through 15. I hope to come to you soon, Paul writes to Timothy. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the, whole, in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. The truth is absolutely vital to the building of the church of Jesus Christ. No truth, no church. So I wonder this morning how seriously you take that statement. How important is the pursuit of truth to you? How important is it to you to guard the truth, to love the truth, to know the truth that God has revealed about everything in His Word? We cannot overestimate the power of truth. Therefore, this morning, as we look at this text, I'd like to bring us to the main idea. We must devote ourselves to diligent work in the word of truth. I'm, I'm drawing this main idea from verse 15, where, which seems to me to be really the, the center of this text. Do your best to present yourself to God, Paul writes to Timothy, as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Devote ourselves. We must devote ourselves to diligent work in the word of truth. To mine it out. To know it. To be able to communicate it to one another clearly and accurately. So the question is, as we come to these verses this morning and see something of that main idea, how can we devote ourselves to diligent work in the word of truth? And there are four vital aspects to this diligent work that I see here in this text. 
And you can follow this in your outline as well. Number one, it is important to remind God's people of the word of truth. This is the first thing that the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy to be doing here in this text in the, letter, or in the, the, the city, the church of Ephesus. Remind them of these things. The, the ones to whom Timothy is to remind these things is certainly not only the, the faithful men referred to in verse 2 of this chapter to whom he is to give the gospel accurately and teach them how to pass on the gospel to others, but certainly the whole congregation as well. Remind them of these things, and these things must refer to everything that the Apostle Paul has been talking about up to this point. If you look back and you kind of remind, remind, we remind ourselves of what, it, what Paul has talked about in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, we see that it'd be easy for, for Timothy to look at this letter and think, well, I need to remind God's people of the salvation that has been granted to them. Look, let your eyes run down again the gospel declaration that Paul has given in verses 9 and 10 where we see Paul writes, speaking of God who saved us, And called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God's people need to be reminded over and over and over again about their salvation about the truth of the gospel, their rescue from the punishment of sin and the power of sin over their lives, and even someday that they will be rescued from the presence of sin. They need to remember that they've been called. How, How is it that you came into this salvation? You've been called by the Spirit of God out of darkness and into light. And that God is sanctifying you. Paul refers to this in those verses. That you are being sanctified. You're you're being cleansed from a life of sin and growing to become more like Jesus Christ, that God's grace made this all happen and is making it happen. You need to be reminded of God's grace and God's purpose in your life to to change you into the image of Christ, that that all happened, that all began, that was all made possible, founded on the incarnation of Jesus Christ when he came and lived to give you righteousness and died to provide you atonement and rose to give you life eternal. And so Paul calls Timothy to remind God's people of these truths. Remind God's people of God's truths. Repeat them. Rehearse them. Can you talk of these truths too much to one another? That's impossible. And the more we remind one another of these truths, the more these truths work their way into our hearts and begin to affect the way we think and speak and respond to all of life. It takes a lot of conversation to work such divine truths into our being, doesn't it? It's not enough to know these things. It's it's that we must understand them and understand how they fit into life so that they begin to shape our character and our desires. And so Paul goes on to remind God's people of gospel responses. Well, if you believe these things, then certainly Paul would have Timothy remind himself and God's people of their application. Fan into flame your gift, Timothy. God has given you a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Share in suffering like a good soldier. Guard the deposit. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Entrust these truths to others so the gospel may be perpetuated in the world. Share in suffering. Be singularly focused like a soldier. Through the Spirit of God, live like an athlete, run by the rules, run for gospel integrity and godly living. Work hard like a farmer by the grace that you're given. Think on these things, meditate upon these things, trust in the Holy Spirit, remember Christ. See, these are the things that Paul has been telling Timothy. That's all wrapped up in these things that that Paul is telling Timothy to remind God's people of. Remember the power of the Word of God, that it cannot be bound. Remember to endure everything for the sake of the elect. Remember to deny yourself with Christ. 
Remember to endure to the end faithfully. Remember the reward of faithfulness to reign with Christ. These are the things that Paul tells Timothy, keep putting all of these in front of the eyes of the people of God. Gospel truth, gospel responses. Reminder is a priority in the ministry of truth. No one gets it at at one time, right? We don't even get it twice over. These are things we have to rehearse constantly. Rehearsing the truth keeps us guarded from wandering into error too, doesn't it? We have to remember. We have to remind one another of these things. Reminder was a priority in Peter's ministry as well. Listen to these verses. 2 Peter 1, 12-15. Peter writes, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them, and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things to mind. I love Peter's words there. Did you catch that? I'm going to remind you of these qualities, though you already know them. As long as I'm alive here, I'm going to remind you. I'm going to stir you up by reminding you. And even after I'm dead, I'm going to make sure there's a way for you to remind one another of those things, which was his letters. It's important to remind one another the truth. That was Jude's priority as well in ministry. Jude verse 5, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it. And then he goes on to talk about the truths. And isn't that the role of the Holy Spirit within us as well? The reminder John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. So if we're going to be used by Christ to build up his church and to preserve it from error, from false teaching, then this is something we truly need to be devoted to, is reminding God's people of God's truth. But also... In this first verse, Paul goes on to speak additionally of what to remind people of. You see, it doesn't exactly come out very well in, in, in these words here, but remind is the main imperative. And charge is a, it's a, it's a, it's a participle. Remind them, charging them before God not to quarrel about words. Part of the reminder that is very important to Paul that Timothy carry on in the life of of these people of Ephesus is that he would remind them really to avoid error. Reminders not only solidify God's people in the truth, but reminders also protect people from error. That's what Paul calls Timothy to do. Charge them, he says, not to engage or not to to quarrel about words. This is um, literally, quarrel about words means to engage in word wars. Quarrels about words are word wars. What does that mean? Specifically, I think what Paul is getting at, and one commentator said it this way, this is serious disputes about the meanings and significance of words relating to the Christian faith. There is a dangerous effort since the founding of the church to take the words of the gospel and assign them with a different meaning and a demoted significance. Have you ever had a discussion with someone and you're both using the same words talking about the gospel? and you know that something isn't quite right with your conversation, and you come to find out you're using the same words but meaning something very different. That's what Paul's talking about here. These word wars that surround, that, that, come, that, that, are, that are all about changing the meaning of foundational words in the gospel. For example, and I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about truths, Concepts of Scripture that we struggle to interpret. I'm talking about tried and true 
time-tested, church-affirmed, spirit-given truths that, that are foundational to the gospel. For example, what is the Bible? Some might say they're words of mere men with parts that are true while others are not. Is that an accurate way of looking at the Bible? Or what about the Trinity? We've, we've come to believe what the Scriptures, the Apostles teach about Trinity. Here's a word that can all of a sudden mean something different where it could mean to someone that God is moving from one role to another. That God isn't three persons, but He shifts His roles from sometimes He acts as the Father, sometimes the Son, sometimes the Spirit. What's the meaning of sin? Feelings of low self-esteem. Making mistakes. A lack of education or opportunity. What is salvation? Being at peace with who you are. Becoming healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Having satisfying and uplifting spiritual experiences. You realize that people are taking these fundamental words that are tried and truly defined in the gospel for us and assigning to them a different meaning? What is the virgin birth? It just means a young girl who had a child with her betrothed. What does it mean when we say Christ is God, Christ's deity? Well, it means that, God's, that, that Jesus is God's first creation, right? Or His emanation. Or maybe He's the angel brother of Lucifer. Or a God-like being. We can take words and switch the meanings entirely. That's what Paul is talking about when he says quarrels about words. What is the meaning of Christ's humanity? Well, he was just a regular guy who was filled with the Spirit of God, or that the Son, uh, he just appeared to be man, but wasn't really a man. What's the meaning of the crucifixion? That Christ didn't really die, he just fainted on the cross. Or even we could say that the meaning of the crucifixion was all about Christ's example to us. He just gave us a good example of how to love one another. What is the meaning of resurrection? And that's where Paul goes in this particular text. That resurrection isn't speaking of a, a bodily resurrection in the future, but resurrection is talking about the fact that Christ only appeared to be raised, or that we are only raised with Christ spiritually, but never bodily. Or how should we think about the origin of the universe? Theistic evolution? How does that sound to you? redefining the value of humanity. Do you believe the Christian church today is, is, is embracing abortion as something okay? Or homosexuality? What is the meaning of marriage? All of, there's so many efforts all over the world today to mix pagan religions with Christianity. Mysticism plus Christianity equals the charismatic movement, right? Eastern religions plus Christianity equals the New Age movement. False teachers take all these words that are familiar to the Christian gospel and argue by many religious words and human philosophies that they have a different meaning than what was clearly given by Christ and the apostles in the Scriptures. So what does Paul say to do about that? He says, charge them not to word war. Don't listen to it and don't get involved with it. You know what charge means? It's a very interesting word here. Charge them. Solemnly warn. For example, Acts 2.40 is an example of how this word means to solemnly warn them. It says here, And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. In fact, in other texts, it actually translates it as warn. You're testifying to the truth of the danger of something. And warning folks to stay away from it. It can also mean to solemnly, earnestly testify and confirm by testimony that something is true. Acts 8.25 says, Now they, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, testified is the word there, and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. They testified to the truth. They testified to the danger of error 
It means to command someone to be convinced of what you are testifying to. Timothy must solemnly warn, earnestly testify to God's people, commanding them to remember the truth and run from the lies. And that's what we're called to as well. Solemnly warn and testify, commanding hearers to be convinced of the danger of changing the meaning or significance of of sound words in the gospel. To hold fast to the meaning of those words that we hear in the gospel and scripture. This charge is, is, is way more serious than most of us take it, isn't it? Please notice the weight with which this charge is made. Remind them of these things. Charge them not to quarrel about words. But look what, look what Paul says. When he really wants you to see the seriousness of something, he says, charge them what? Before God. This charge is to be made so that all who hear understand that they are receiving this charge in the very presence of God. God's here with us. He knows His Word. He is witnessing our heart's response to this charge. He is seeing the life response that will follow this charge, whether we heed it or ignore it. And God will rightly judge accordingly. So each one of us must be serious about our reception of truth and our rejection of Satan's lies. And we must be earnest about calling one another to the same serious response. But why is it so serious? Look what Paul says is the outcome. These quarrels, these word wars that seek to redefine foundational gospel truths It does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Those who sit under and accept accept such twisted teaching, it does them no good. It's useless. It's empty. I think of Colossians 2.23 where it says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom, yeah, yeah, these, these sorts of teachings and redefinition of, of gospel truths can sound very wise. They can sound very religious. They can sound like intelligent human philosophy. But Paul says they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Man-made redefinition of truth has no ability to save you from sin or help you to overcome your sin. In fact, Paul says it only ruins the hearers. That's, that Greek word is where we get the word catastrophe. It's exactly that word, catastrophe. It means to overthrow, to destroy. There's one other time this word is used in the New Testament. It's in 2 Peter 2 and verse 6 where Peter describes the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That these cities were overthrown for their sin. And it, and it speaks of the eternal destruction of those who close their ears to the truth and listen to the lies. So before God, constantly call to mind the truth, receive the truth, and refuse to tamper with the truth by twisting it into a lie. That's, that's Paul's exhortation to us in this first verse of this section, verse 14. Because the truth of the word of truth is absolutely essential to the spiritual health and growth of the body of Christ, we must remind God's people of the word of truth. Devote ourselves to the diligent work in the Word of God. Now, the second vital aspect, not only are we called to remind God's people or one another of God's truth, but look at this. Number two, rightly handle the Word of truth. This is verse 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. How many of you have, how many of you have this verse memorized? All right. All right, this is a verse you need to memorize. This is one that it comes up in Awana, I'm sure, right? Comes up in Kids Club. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. This is an incredibly important verse for us, especially in light of its context where Paul is urging Timothy to make sure God's people know to turn from error 
and embrace the truth for their spiritual, eternal well-being. In order for a local church to have a healthy and steady diet of truth by which to mature and grow in Christ, there must be those within the church, primarily elders, who will be laboring very hard in the Word of God. We see this sort of pattern begin Acts 6, verses 2 and 4. Remember this? And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The leaders of Christ's church must devote themselves to diligent work in the word of truth. But it doesn't stop there, truly. This kind of diligence with the word of truth must be reflected throughout the entire body of Christ, from the elders to moms and dads in the home with children. We all must work hard in the word to rightly handle it. That's how we are protected and stay in the truth, is how we handle explaining, understanding, interpreting the Word of God. This is something we can take lightly. We can see that in this text. First, I want you to notice the word handler's zeal. Verse 15, look at the word handler's zeal. Paul says, do your best. That's not something we're comfortable saying often in the Christian life. Do your best. That sounds very me-centered. Well, keep in mind verse 1 in this chapter. As you look at all of these intense exhortations, don't forget verse 1. What does verse 1 say? Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. None of us can accomplish any of these things by our own strength. That's just like the prayer Jeremy was talking, had shared with us this morning. We can't do any. It's, in fact, it's a sin to embark upon any of these thinking, I can do this. I can handle it. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We must take the very first baby steps in all of these things, totally committed to resting in all the strength that God provides to us through Christ. Do your best, though, he says. Paul says it means to be eager with this, to exert oneself, to give diligence, to have passion, persistence, and zeal. One one, uh, author put it this way, to give maximum effort. What do you give maximum effort to? What do you labor about to the point of exhaustion? Paul calls us to do our best with the word. And another way to look at the word handlers zeal with this is just by looking at not just do your best, but he calls us workers. We're to be workers with this. That's, that's the word for, the, for a common laborer. Usually someone for hire, uh, especially in an agricultural setting. Whenever we think, I mean, what kind of worker comes to your mind first when you think of someone who has to work extremely hard? My mind, I always think of a farmer. They, never, they, they don't ever have to get a break, right? From four in the morning till, you know, they, they have so much come out of them. And so that's what Paul uses here too. That's the same word Jesus used in Matthew 9, 37 to 38, where he looked on the multitudes with compassion, right? And he said the the harvest is plenteous, but what? The laborers are few. And part of our work as laborers, bringing in the harvest, is to rightly handle the word of truth. So please see the word handler's zeal here. Very difficult work carried out with great diligence. Work hard in the word to mine out its pure truth undamaged. And don't expect it to be anything less than hard work. Give it everything you've got. That's what Paul is saying here. Reading, i got to keep my eyes open as I read, right? It can, can it be hard work sometimes? Yes. Studying it, yes. Praying over it, applying it, communicating it. Do we ever come across a text of Scripture that is difficult to understand? Do you? You're reading through and you're like, I have no idea what that means. I don't know what to do with this. I'm stumped. Well, we all have a choice at that moment, don't we? That will reflect directly on our love for the truth. 
take it the easy way and put our own spin on it? it? This is what it means to me. That's the worst question you can ask in Bible study, right? Take the easy way and neglect it. Just forget it. I'll, whatever. No. Or take the workman's way and keep working on it to the best of your ability until you understand the truth of the text as God intended to be understood. Truth is so precious. We must work hard at it. And one of the ways we work hard at this is, is delivering the truth into our own hearts and then as we speak it to others, unchanged from its meaning as Christ gives it to us. We love the truth and we work at examining the truth and understanding it and communicating it. And why must we be so driven? Well, there's not only the, the word handler's zeal, but then there's this, you have to remember the word handler's audience. Do your best to what? Present yourself to God as one approved. Oh, dear brothers and sisters, when you study the Word in your private closet at home, or when you speak the Word to another, even your children at home, keep in mind that God is your audience. He hears you. He knows what you say and how you study. And so Paul says, present yourself to God in this. That means to present someone or something to another for their personal disposal and for their observation and questioning and examination. Think about that, right? To God, here I am as one studying your word. Examine my heart. How many of you have prayed in some time of Bible study the prayer of the apostle or the prayer of David? Search me and know my heart. Try me, know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. That's how we present ourselves to God in, in study. God, if, I, if you don't show me what you speak here in this truth, I will not get it. I need you. I present myself to you. And having studied, we say, God, it's yours. Examine me. Please show me where, where I have gone wrong. Please protect me from going wrong. Do you beg God to be your first audience and your first examiner in that way? That's part of being a word handler that rightly divides the word of truth. To present ourselves to God as someone who can question us and examine us and then to be affirmed as worthy after that testing. Not, not worthy in the sense of earning God's favor, but worthy in the sense of having God's approval that what we have understood and what we will speak is indeed His truth. That's our goal. That's our desire. The word here for approved speaks of uh, coinage. That's the illustration Paul has in mind here where you can look at a coin and sometimes throughout history, coins, as you know, were made of genuine metal, right? And unfortunately, <laughs> I'm seeing some of you laugh about this because you know what I'm going to say. Unfortunately, sometimes people would chip and cut off pieces of the coins, right? That's where we get our terminology, two bits, right? It was part of a piece of, of coin. Well, sometimes people would try to buy and sell things with diminished quality coins. And so to be approved uh, speaks of a coin that is its full weight and genuine metal. This is what it's intended to be, and therefore it's worthy for commerce. And we can see our, our study in the Word of God that way, that what we have to say is genuine truth. It's approved by God and it's worthy to be spoken. The hard-working word handler's ultimate ambition and goal with the word of truth is to be able to stand before God and have Him place His approval on you as a word handler and the words that you speak after diligent study. Only one person's opinion matters when it comes to the meaning of Scripture and how we handle it, right? Only one person's opinion matters. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul writes, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. There's our same word. Paul was approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, and that's how he speaks. And listen to the last phrase, not to please man, 
but to please God who tests our hearts. 1 Timothy 5.21, Paul writes to Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep the rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. 1 Timothy 6.13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, keep the commandment. 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, complete patience and teaching. I remember hearing Pastor Stephen Lawson say something like this, it doesn't matter who you please if you displease the Lord and it doesn't matter who you displease if you please the Lord. And that's the way Paul presents to us this idea of handling the truth. So you have this very important call to do your best, to present yourself to God in your study and in your speaking as one approved by Him and Him alone. And then we see the word handle is confidence. There is then no need to be ashamed. Shame. What's shame? An internal sense of fear and desire to hide, having done something dishonorable, whether real or perceived. It's easy to be tempted to shame when the world fails to understand or receive or rather hates the word of truth that you speak. It's easy to feel shame in that. But you need not be ashamed if you and your message have been approved by God because you have rightly handled the word of truth. That's an encouragement to you. That's an encouragement to Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then the last part of this verse, the word handler's objective. Rightly handling the word of truth. Rightly handling the word of truth. You know what that means? Literally, rightly handling. That means, to you've heard this before, I'm sure, cut it straight. To cut it straight. This word has been used in several applications. Let me give some to you. It's been used for plowing a straight furrow in a planting field or through a rocky mountain to make a pathway for people to walk or through a dense forest to cut a path for people to walk. Cutting it straight has been used referring to sawing a straight board in the construction of a wood building, cutting a square stone in the building of a stone structure, cutting straight pieces of cloth or hide so that they can be sewn together and fit together to make one perfect whole dress or tent or whatever is being made. So take the analogy you want to. They all fit very well with what Paul is communicating. When you teach the word, plow a row of words that are true, that point directly to the truth, do not deviate from error. When you teach the word, when you study the word, make a clear path for the truth so that others may come to that, be clearly led to the truth, and walk in truth. When you teach the word, cut stones Cut boards of truth or pieces of truth so that they fit together and form a whole that is consistent with the entire body of truth that God has revealed. The point is this. You and I as word handlers must work hard by the grace of God to teach the truth correctly, directly, and clearly. It has to fit with all of Scripture. It must be approved by God. We can't make the Scripture mean anything we want it to mean. We have to cut it straight. We can't make the Gospel anything we want it to be. We must understand it and explain it to others accurately. 2 Corinthians 2.17 For we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.2, but we have renounced disgraceful, disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word. So because the Word of truth is absolutely essential for the health and growth of the body of Christ, 
we must devote ourselves to the diligent work in the word of truth. A third vital aspect to consider this morning. Number three, run from all that swerves from the truth. Run from all that swerves from the truth. And this is, this is verses 16 through 18. So let's take a look at this. But avoid irreverent battle, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Remind God's people of the word of truth, rightly handle the word of truth, and now run from all that swerves from the truth. Notice Paul's description of those who swerve from the truth. He, he says there in verse 18, Describing Hymenaeus and Philetus, those who have swerved from the truth. That literally means to deviate from or miss the mark. The illustration here is like an arrow shot from a bow, completely missing the bullseye, completely missing the target. These men have completely missed the truth. They have not cut it straight, but they have strayed from the truth. Notice how Paul describes the words of those swerving from the truth. He says in verse 16 that they speak irreverent babble. That's religious talk for sure. Jargon, chatter that is literally profane, meaning it's godless. It's very religious. It's full of human philosophies and wisdom, but it's, it doesn't have God in it. There's no real power. It's godless. It's Christless. And so therefore it's empty and vain and useless. It's an alternate religious teaching. It's an alternate answer to a human problem. It's filled with human effort, worldly thinking, but it's empty of God. Paul's already talked to us about this. 1 Timothy 4.7 have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Same word, irreverent. Train yourself for godliness instead. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Boy, it sounds good, sounds intelligent, but it's anti-gospel. What's Paul's instruction with the words of those who have swerved from the truth? Avoid it. Steer clear of it. Turn yourself around in order to stay away from it. Good illustration I can think of with this word is, is like ice patches on the road, right? You see them coming. You can kind of see that shiny, slippery spot, and you're like, wow, let me really put on the gas or the brake at that point, right? No, we go around it. We try to get our tires on some, some pavement or even, even better than the ice in some snow that could give us some grip, but we don't hit the ice because it could send us into the ditch. And that's the response we have toward this. That's what Paul's telling us. Avoid it. For example, here's, here's some human bantering replacements for the gospel. You need a deep spiritual experience to release you from all the negativity that holds you back. What are all these words of negativity and self-esteem as if those are your worst enemies, right? You need to be slain in the Spirit. Speak in tongues in order to advance in your walk with the Lord. If you're not, you're not going to get very far. You know, I think as I say these things as examples, I just hope that somebody doesn't confuse what I'm saying and think, he believed that. No. You need, to tr you need to deny yourself certain foods, practices, and relationships so that you can achieve a higher spiritual life. You need to be devoted to religious ceremonies and rituals and laws and duties and practices to gain and remain in God's favor. You need to speak positive, created words into your future if you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. If you feel that your way to God is true, then it's true for you. How often have we heard those things? If it's true for you, it's true. What does that even mean? It doesn't matter what you say. As long as you believe it's true for you, then God will honor it. This is nothing but irreverent babble. It's godless and it's empty. Paul says, 
Avoid it. But why is it so important to avoid it? Again, Paul here speaks of the effects of words that swerve from the truth. He says, first, they lead people into more and more ungodliness. This is like advancement into sin, is what what Paul is saying here. Yeah, there's progress in these words. Yes, there's advancement. These are progressive religious thinking. What they do is they progress you right into more and more wickedness. The ungodliness will compound itself. The wickedness will exponentially increase. It's not only a life of sin that causes someone to pursue errant theology, but errant theology also leads to a life of sin. And you might not even realize it. 2 Peter 2 talks about that. Jude talks about that. It never affects, and it never affects only one person. It spreads to others and can destroy an entire assembly of believers. Look what Paul says. Their talk will spread like gangrene. You don't have to raise your hand, but have any of you ever seen gangrene? I mean, you, you, can, you can, if you were to do some research on the medicine of the Civil War, it would, it would, you would run into it very quickly. Paul gives a perfect word to just startle us with how devastating it is to allow error into the body of Christ. Truly. Gangrene is a disease. I I looked it up a little bit, and it's actually just disgusting and overwhelmingly devastating to, to evaluate Gangrene is a disease by which any part of the body suffering from infection and inflammation becomes so corrupted that unless a remedy be seasonably applied, the evil, conti- the evil continually spreads, attacks other parts, and eventually eats away the bones. Did you realize that gangrene can start from a small puncture wound, particularly in someone whose limb maybe is blood flow deficient? And in 48 hours, it can take that person's life. That's how quickly this can spread. It's putrid. It's painful. It's extremely destructive. Paul's analogy here is perfect. And we have to swerve from the error to continue in the way of truth. We are to avoid this. He gives examples, and again, Paul has no trouble naming names here. Notice that. It's not unkind to name the names of false teachers. It's loving to the body of Christ. Hymenaeus and Philetus. We don't know anything about Philetus other than that he was, it says what, what it says in this verse, but according to 1 Timothy 1.20, Hymenaeus had already undergone church discipline, if you'll remember that verse. Because Paul said he had already handed him over to Satan. But apparently his teachings were still affecting the body of Christ. What was their teaching? You can see it here. That the resurrection had already happened. It's hard to know exactly what Paul had in mind here. But it's possible that these teachers thought or taught that the resurrection was merely a spiritual resurrection. No physical resurrection coming. You're not going to raise from the dead and go to heaven as a body, reunited with your spirit. All you're just going to have a a spirit that that floats around in, in in the immortal spiritual world. And we know what Paul said about that, right? 1 Corinthians 15. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. But if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, verse 20, what? Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And again, notice here what Paul says about the impact of their teaching. They are upsetting the faith of some. 
That word to upset means to overthrow, to overturn, to subvert, to destroy. You see, false teaching has a way of destroying human faith. We have to be careful with this phrase now. We know from the rest of Scripture that genuine faith, saving faith, God-given faith, is guarded by God all through the difficulties of life until that believer is safely at home in heaven. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 says that clearly. Therefore, we can't say about this faith that it was genuine and that it was lost. True or genuine faith can't be lost or destroyed. But a merely human faith that is spiritually interested, curious, searching, accepting whatever's taught can certainly be overturned and destroyed by those who teach error. This phrase seems to refer to people who are seeking answers to spiritual questions and concerns. They're seeking They're seekers who are looking for truth and were even possibly beginning to intellectually understand and receive some aspects of the truth. And then this godless babble comes into their ears and cuts them off at the knees, as it were, overturns their faith. They weren't ever given genuine faith to believe, but what faith they had was destroyed. And genuine saving faith was yet to be gained. See, the words of those who swerve from the truth, this irreverent battle, this incalculably dangerous teaching, it's, it's gangrene. It's eternally life-threatening. And therefore, Paul's words are to be taken to heart. Avoid it. Avoid it. And again, this is a reason why we must devote ourselves to diligent work in the word of truth. Now, finally this morning, Paul closes this text with a fantastic verse of encouragement because he's taken us to some pretty pretty overwhelming aspects of the fight between truth and error. Number four, rest in the saving power of the Lord. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Holy Spirit, through Paul's writings, certainly anticipated that overwhelmed sort of response that we can have when we look at the truth war. And that's why Paul ends the section the way he does. Do not lose hope. As you look out into the Christian scene and see the sea of false teaching and false teachers, instead rest in the saving power of the Lord, because his true church will not be destroyed. And that's what this this verse is going to show us. It will not be destroyed or lost by that false teaching, but will be kept in the truth. And that's why we must continue to devote ourselves to the diligent work of the truth. First, notice the Lord makes his church stand. The first phrase, but the God's firm foundation stands. The firm foundation is God's church. That's another way of talking about his church. God's firm foundation here is his church, his building. And God's true church will stand forever because he is the one who builds it. He is the one who keeps it. He makes it to stand. Just like we already read earlier, Matthew 6, 8, 16, 18. I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Again, Ephesians 2, 20 and 22. We are the church that Christ is building us on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ is our cornerstone. We are the temple of the Lord. He is building us together to be a dwelling place for God. He will make us stand. And we as his church, the true church of Jesus Christ, who affirms the truth and bears the gospel, he puts his seal on us. God's firm foundation stands. Look at this. Bearing this seal. Think of what that word means. The seal of the Lord. That speaks of His ownership, doesn't it? He owns us. We're His. We're possessed. Do you ever tell people that? I'm possessed. We're possessed by the Spirit of God. John 10, 27-30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
And I give to them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The church who hears the voice of God, voice of Christ in the Word, hears the truth, receives it, is anchored in it, and we belong to Christ. He possesses us. Ephesians 1, 13-14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, what happened? This is, this, is, this is how we hear the voice of Christ and come to Him. When we hear the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believe in Him, we become sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. God possesses us. He owns us. He keeps us. And that Spirit is the guarantee of our final inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The Lord causes His church to stand. The Lord seals His church. The Lord secures His church. Look at what Paul says the seal is. Bearing this seal. What seal, Paul? Two things. The Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So again, the seal is security and sanctification. The Lord knows those who are His. That's security right there. That's pointing to the sovereign call of God upon the believer, pulling that believer to Himself. I know my own and my own know me. John 6, 37 through 40, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me. Here's security. This is the will of the Father, the sovereign saving work of God, that I should lose nothing of all that He's given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's security. The Lord knows those who are His. He knows them, He calls them, He keeps them. Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is that true? Because we are foreknown, we have been predestined, called, justified, sanctified, and we will be glorified. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Because if He gave His Son for us and everything else through His Son, what else do we need? We're legally protected in Christ. We're interceded for. We are inseparable from Him. The Lord secures His church. And then finally, the Lord sanctifies His church. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord will make clear those who are His... Because He will produce holiness in them. We depart from iniquity. We turn away from sin. It's not us, ultimately. It's God's work in us. He will produce holiness in us through the teaching of the Word. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. And really, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's both an affirmation and an exhortation at the same time, isn't it? That's who we are, and that's who we must be. If we name the name of the Lord, our Savior, our Lord, our God, genuinely, then we can be sure of this, that He who began a good work in us will perform it, will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And therefore, as obedient children, we must not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. But as He who called us is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. What a word of security. The Lord makes His church stand. The Lord seals His church, owning His church, possessing His church. The Lord secures His church. The Lord sanctifies His church. Did you notice in this verse, that there are two quotations. The Lord knows those who are His is one. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Do you know what Old Testament reference that is to? Boy, you'd never think of it, but it's a profound Old Testament account. This, these two quotations come from 
Numbers 16, when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram challenged Moses about his God-given authority and his role to speak the truth. Remember that story? All this group of people came together and challenged Moses, and Moses said what? Well, show up tomorrow, and I'll show up tomorrow, and we'll let God decide. And so there's this verse, Numbers 16, 4 through 5, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, in the morning, the Lord will show who is his. That's where the first quote comes from. The Lord knows those who are His. The Lord will show who is His and who is holy and will bring Him near to Him. The one whom He chooses, He will bring near to Him. What a fantastic illustration of God's choosing, saving, securing work among His people. And what happened? Did He keep His people safe? He absolutely did. What happened to the false teachers in that group? What happened to their company? They were swallowed up into the ground. Numbers 16.26 And he spoke to the congregation saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. In other words, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Come away from false teaching. Come away from this sin. Right? That's what God calls us to. But it's also a word of security and comfort. God knows those who are His and He'll keep us. Especially in this day when the divide is so clear and the battle is so hot for the truth. We must depart from iniquity. And that means error and the life that results from it. Therefore, Paul's exhortation to us is so clear. We must devote ourselves to diligent work in the word of truth. As I close this morning and before we pray, I want to read just a few more verses to you to seal to your heart the inestimable value of the truth. Proverbs 23, 23. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, buy instruction and understanding. John 8, 31 to 32, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 1 John 2, 18-27 Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. You hear the passion of John for his people? Abide in the truth. Walk in the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. God will keep you. You will be safe. You will be delivered safely home. Turn from error 
and pursue the truth. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ like this, I urge you to come because as this text makes plain, walking in error about the way of salvation will lead you to eternal judgment under God's wrath. And you can come to Christ, receive His righteousness, reject your own self-righteousness, receive His atonement for you, confess your sin and turn from them. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through Him. But in Him, you are safe. And you will know the joy of eternal life. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we ask that you would indeed seal to our hearts these truths and the, the power of the truth, the glory of Christ who is the truth. May we indeed be devoted to it and be willing to sacrifice our love for sin and even our curiosity about error in order to turn from it and avoid it and walk in truth. Father, we have no greater joy together than to hear that each other walks in the truth. We pray this for one another. We pray this for our children. We pray this for our loved ones. We pray this for those whom we are seeking to share your word with. Father, keep us, we pray. In the name of the Son, amen.